0: Welcome to Career in Ruins, the only podcast that gets better with age. Oh, so, Lawrence, what are we going to be talking about this week
1: on this Career
0: in Ruins? This week, you have been out interviewing Fiona. I have. We've chatted
1: to Fiona Coward, a colleague of mine at Bournemouth University, about her research so far and we touch on some incredibly interesting points from her work in Vietnam to what you would say to a Neanderthal if you met them.
0: Ooh. What would what would you say to a Neanderthal if you met oh, them? Hold that thought until oh. the end. <laughs> <laughs> What's been on your mind this week, Deza?
1: Oh, this week, I mean, I, I'm going to go pretty, pretty close to home this week I think, because um, way back in episode one I think you and I chatted about a little bit about ourselves and our jobs and we were we had a bit of an argument about whose job was best and and well uh, yeah uh, argument um, um,
0: just, yeah he, i mean i won that argument. yeah wow. Well,
1: <laughs> we, we, we we can just agree that we both have fairly good jobs and yeah. um, today was one of my favorite days of the year so a colleague of mine professor kate wellham developed a practical for um, studying ancient materials where we basically get all of the first years in a laboratory and we just run through in small groups time and time again a suite of six different practicals across different materials and different things and it's the one day of the year I get to really be a metallurgist and chat to lots of people who seemingly or they at least pretend to be interested in, <laughs> um, <laughs> interested in archaeometallurgy so it's, it's a really like fun day for me. Yeah exactly <laughs> so I get I get over over the space of six hours to tell the same story six times and refine it through the day. And I find myself repeating the same joke time and time again, getting it a little bit better each time. Good, yeah. But it's, it's a great day because I actually get to sort of be face-to-face with our undergraduate students, and that's a really enjoyable process because you get way better questions, uh, or incredibly well-informed questions, but a variety of questions from... First-year students, as as people go through their career in ruins, um, they get more and more knowledgeable, they get more and more specialised, and the questions tend to become quite focused. But when you're dealing with people who maybe are seeing uh, a pickaxe for the first time, or a or a um, a plough shard or something for the first time, you get a variety of questions that you would never expect to sort of field in a normal lecture environment. And because you're kind of dealing not one-on-one but in groups of three or four people mm. people are quite happy to ask questions that they wouldn't necessarily say in a, in a larger forum like a lecture or a seminar so it was quite fun there was a, um, a, a farming implement which looks a bit like a bent spear and I would ask the students what they thought these items were for and the interpretation that kept reoccurring was oh it's a weapon it's a spearhead and I would kind of follow that up with feeling a bit smarmy, um, a bit smug. Not like you. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> who'd have thought it? Why is why is this this beer slightly curved and why one of the griefs just went straight in for, well, you could do the most damage that way. You, <laughs> kind of, you poked it in and twizzle it round dark. a bit. And actually it got really, really dark. And I thought, you know what? I'd never have thought of it that way. i just assume <laughs> that that slight curvature is for kind of a 45-degree angle of holding <laughs> home to the ground. As have you, you do. not watched The Walking Dead? I don't know. I, just, I, really, truly, really, really, if you were a gardener and you were kind of tilling the ground with that implement and someone snuck up behind you and attacked you, mm. you'd end them. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be you'd win any battle, and it just kind of flipped on on its head. Really, my my understanding of it. I, I mean, I'm fairly still, fairly certain what it was, but questions like that kind of seeded my own imagination. Uh,
0: so, uh, what, what you're saying is, when it comes to the zombie apocalypse, we want to be heading straight to the Pit Rivers Museum. Yes. Ignore the battle area. Go to the agricultural area. Yeah, and um, just get as many pick up some out. tools yeah, and some implements. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah.
1: you uh, You'd save yourself. It's nice and analogue <laughs> technology. Uh, it's just, just overall a really enjoyable day. And I I, I like that element of archaeology. As I've said before on this podcast, the, the conversations you have and the feedback you get from, from students are some of the most enlightening you can have. It's almost like holding a mirror up to your knowledge that any hole or any overstretch or overreach you have, probably much like doing a podcast in many respects. <laughs> um, it's kind of instant... Um, Refreshing feedback, and and I loved that. So, how about you? What have you been up to this week?
0: Well, my news that's caught my eyes today is something that's come out today, actually. And around two years ago, the Environment Agency and the UK government or English government announced that they were going to do 100% blanket coverage of LiDAR coverage at one meter resolution for the whole of England. And that's mega. That's massive. For those of you that don't know what LIDAR is... What on earth is LIDAR? Uh, LIDAR. LIDAR <laughs> stands LIDAR. for Light Detection and Ranging. Oof. And is it, it's a remote-sensing Fascinating. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it's probably one of the coolest... It is amazing. Um, it's lasers from planes. Prospecting, archaeological <laughs> prospection technique there is going. Um, it's a technique... It's a laser scanner that's effectively... on its most basic form, it's been attached to the bottom of an aircraft... It's got special computers and GPS devices attached to it and the speed at which that laser leaves the aircraft and hits the ground and then returns to the aircraft allows the aeroplane to calculate 3D points. Wow. Um, But we're not just talking one or two 3D points. We're talking millions, billions of points across massive landscapes. And the beauty of LiDAR as you know, Derek, I'm sure, <laughs> is that whereas traditional aerial photographs that map photograph the top of tree canopies or something like that, um, and obs- the tree canopies obscure archaeological features beneath them, these laser beam can find gaps between the tree canopies. So the, the, the technique's often flown over the winter months, and it allows us to peel back that tree layer and identify existing known archaeological sites and map them better but more importantly forgotten or lost archaeological sites and it's going to revolutionize the archaeological record i can't express how excited i am i mean just despite my initial
1: cynicism in the, in the comments two minutes ago i completely agree i'm a massive fan of lidar and the ability i mean the the landscape around us is surrounded by tiny lumps and bumps that are imperceivable on the ground mm-hmm. and yet you fly this laser jet as i'm going to call it now <laughs> above the ground <laughs> Laser jet, <laughs> and suddenly you reveal this this human past that you had no idea was under your feet and it it's the scale of it across the entire landscape that kind of resolution is unreal
0: it's that resolution it's that that both resolution of the feature and resolution in terms of the scale as well it's just incredible and so as of today they've released the first set of one meter resolution data as part of this nationwide And can anyone access anyone can access it it's it's through the environment agency um, website so if you just google environment agency lidar data it comes in a, a number of different formats in terms of um digital terrain models digital surface models composites or individual tiles but if that doesn't mean anything to you don't worry just google it and look there's loads of youtube videos that talk about free softwares (laughs) like qgis and I am very excited.
1: <laughs> so that's for the UK, but presumably LIDAR has been used elsewhere in the world in other, in other interesting environments and interesting cases. Oh, yeah,
0: hugely. I mean, it, it, we're fortunate in the UK that we have a number of heritage lottery funding projects that have supported a LIDAR um, research. Um, that have supported investigation and it's it sort of added to our knowledge but also the, the environment agency have been undertaking research. A slight downside of this work they're doing is that it's one meter resolution which is fine for identifying archaeological sites of a particular scale but you lose detail and there's been amazing work done by South Downs or Canuck Chase where they've had 25 centimetre resolution this is four times the resolution of the data that's publicly available. I mean that's, that's enough isn't it high <laughs> <laughs> is <how> it <laughs> yeah. but it's incredible to the point where some of the features you don't even need to go and look at at the ground because it's so well documented with this 3D data but um it's it's just revolution in terms of landscape scale and identifying new features and improving the archaeological red horde and from my point of view enhancing heritage management. It's mm. it's it's a huge resource.
1: If if my memory serves and and forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I remember some headlines fairly recently of quite. Sort of groundbreaking work in south america particularly in and around guatemala finding uh, the lost lions. Mayan yeah, 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 village towns, mm. cities hidden by tree canopies mm. that are completely lost to the naked eye mm-hmm. flying lidar um surveys over the areas revealed huge amounts absolutely. of interesting archaeology that would never have been necessarily identified on the same scale in the same way That's without it.
0: it yeah and it, it's i it, i mean we are to, up until recently, we've been dictated by funding and resources and whether it's lot lottery fund or that mine project you're talking about, whether they've had support from external, huge amounts of money from external funding, um, but hopefully, at least in the UK, but going across Europe and anywhere else across the world, as this technique is it it has benefits for other techniques such as forestry and um i think in the uk particularly it's it's used for flood mapping
1: i was going to say the, the the extensive or most extensive use of lidar in the uk at the moment wasn't necessarily commissioned by archaeologists, was it? No, no. For for large-scale environmental mapping
0: and and things like that. It's a classic example of archaeologists making use of um, secondary data. We love a good data set. (laughs) But um, in Finland, for example, they have blanket high-resolution, higher-resolution than one-metre data, but it's to inform their forestry practices. But in the UK, yeah, one meter is great for informing flooding mapping as well.
1: I know there's been some incredible work in Europe and in the Balkans as well on using um, lidar to identify hill forts and a, v- a variety of sites on a really kind of extensive scale. And mm. It's it's that availability and almost richness of discovery that i think makes yeah. it so
0: fantastic and it's global as you say so our colleagues andy brown and Josie hagan they've been looking at lidar in new zealand. zealand yeah again yeah.
1: identifying hillfort styles of sites past sites which are very similar in in character to what we, we see here in the uk places like maiden castle mm. but on the other side of the globe mm. um, very different culturally very different in terms of and their background but still the technique is is almost unparalleled
0: and again the, the data has not been clo- recorded for archaeological purposes but it's being repurposed to mm. enhance the record and enhance the understanding and enhance the management of those sites so great day for archaeology in in england in yeah. britain but um yeah
1: and anyone that finds anything good less yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> definitely
0: so interview
1: i've had a really good week of interviews this week and i've been kind of Trawling the corridors of work, looking for interesting people to tell interesting stories, and um, one of the first people whose doors I knocked on was um, Dr. Fiona Coward, um, who's a colleague of mine, um, a lecturer in archaeology and anthropology, and she is fair to say to date she's had an incredibly interesting career, and now um, works in a variety of places and a variety of roles, and I'm really kind of pleased with the stories she told in her interview, so we should have a listen. Excellent. Begin with, to kind of warm up a bit, how did you get into archaeology and anthropology? What <laughs> led you to where you are now?
2: Oh man, this is a tricky one. Um, I don't really know, to be honest. I think I got very lucky. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do as an undergrad. And, uh, in fact, I went to the subject open day for Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic at
1: uh, Cambridge. Okay. Is thing? And
2: <laughs> it is a thing, and I really like the idea of being able to read these obscure languages that, you know, possibly only about five people in the world <laughs> that I myself will be able to read. And I went to the subject day, and that thoroughly turned me off the idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, well, yeah, I'm interested in all cultures and all this kind of stuff, so maybe archaeology. And, yeah, just kind of seized on this idea, applied for a few archaeology courses and was incredibly lucky, I think, that actually when I got there, I was like, Okay, phew, this is what I want to do. That's a relief.
1: <laughs> so that stage was it archaeology or nothing?
2: <laughs> well, it was an archaeology and anthropology course. Ah, okay. And after the first year you specialised, and I was a bit torn, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to go down the biological anthropology route or the archaeology route, but chose archaeology on the basis that you could sit in on some of the bioarchaeology stuff so you could get the best of both worlds. And to be honest, I think I've made a good decision on that front. (laughs) So it was pretty much completely random. To be honest, there was a lot of. I'm a massive science fiction and fantasy fan, okay, and I think that probably factored in. In fact, I'm just going to go straight out and blame Robert Holdstock, <laughs> Thugger Wood, and Lavondus. Just amazing books about about culture or you know prehistoric cultures and the impact that has. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying is that I kind of got into archaeology through the Jungian collective unconscious, and that's a bit concerning. Now oh, I've yes. said that out loud. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Can we it. destroy this recording immediately? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, more <laughs> no one will ever know. Right? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say I was still into the Jungian collective unconscious, but it was a nice idea at the time. It's the kind of thing that you know. An 18-year-old thinks it's really cool. <laughs> a 43-year-old is kind of like, well, yeah, it was cool, wasn't it? But let's face reality. <laughs> so
1: you don't go back and read it every now and again? Oh, I do go back and read okay, it every now and
2: enough. again. Different perspective.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So that's what led you to your undergrad. And then, yeah. so where did you go from there?
2: Um, by the time I'd finished the undergrad, I knew I wanted to stay with it, yeah. basically. Um, so I didn't go straight into a master's, though. I swanned off to a bit of travelling. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship that paid for me to go out to Australia, which I wanted to go out anyway. And while I was going, this was the days before email or even the internet really. So I sent a a letter via snail mail to the Australian National Museum saying, hey, I'm coming over, are there any digs? And they came back saying, oh, there's this little dig going on in Cuddy Springs, which then turned out to be one of the earliest sites in Australia, and was a fantastic (laughs) experience. Uh, so, yeah, I went out and had a great time in the semi arid zone in Australia where it rained constantly. <laughs> Excellent. Could take the girl out of Wales. <laughs> and then, yeah, came back, did a few other bits and bobs, and then started my master's down at Southampton. And again, knew that was what I wanted to do. <laughs>
1: Was so that becoming more specialised at Southampton?
2: Or? Yeah, that was osteoarchaeology. OK. So, um, human and animal bones yeah. for that oh, one. I see. Yeah, so very very much specialised and did my master's on uh, the evolution of language and speech anatomy in, in hominins, which was, you know, my undergraduate dissertation was on brain evolution in hominins. So, there's definitely a theme developing yeah, here. Yeah. Then, after the master's, um, I went off. I was lucky enough to get a job on the Spitalfields dig that was hoovering up anyone who'd even uh-huh. seen a bone at the time in the UK. And to this day, you know, it's, if you meet someone that you think, I know your face, you're always kind of like, well, were you an undergraduate with me or were you at Spitalfields? Nine times out of ten, they were at Spitalfields at some point. So we hosed down 7,000 human skeletons at Spitalfields. <laughs> and that took up most of the year in between my master's and starting my PhD.
1: Wow. So you spent that whole year at Spitalfields?
2: Uh, um, big chunks of yeah. it, basically. I mean, that, I mean, that was an amazing experience because if you're not familiar with the site, it's a uh, like medieval hospital. So most of the people buried there had been patients, so had various horrific things wrong with them, which, you know, being very young and naive at the time, we thought was great.
1: <laughs> hey,
2: look, I got syphilis, guys. Wow. Look,
1: look. So could yeah. you see the kind of trauma and disease as you were excavating?
2: Uh, we didn't. Esca- uh, uh, I you, didn't do the excavation the part. The I was crisis. just a human bones processor. Uh, but yeah, you would you would literally just pick up a bag full of clay, start hosing off the bones, okay. and be like, "Great, that's got a horrific malformed femur. <laughs> that's got syphilis. That's got this." At the time, I was my partner at the time was working in the eye hospital at Brighton. Yeah. He was a scrub nurse, so I would uh, go home on the train, go wondering again, going, hey, yeah, I got a syphilis today. And he'd be like, yeah, the guy with the screwdriver in the ride today, yeah. <laughs> Beers, great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good, great time to be alive.
1: <laughs> oh, that's super. And- so that led you to your PhD. Had you already decided during your masters what you were going to do next, or was it during that
2: year? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I stayed at Southampton to the PhD, so it was the same people. Um, I asked Clive Gamble to be my supervisor, mm-hmm. and um, we spent alongside working at Spitalfields. We spent most of that year trying and applying for money for, for the HRC which I, I got, luckily, yeah. so I then had three years' stipend for the PhD, which was a massive deal, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, oh God, that PhD changed so much when I think about my research proposal. It's slightly embarrassing now when I supervise undergrads, like, well, how exactly will you do it? What precisely will you? <laughs> well, you just know that, actually, you're such a hypocrite. Because <laughs> I originally said I think I was going to look at small microfauna and small mammals on paleolithic sites, and I ended up... Uh, doing a GIS analysis of large prey hunting techniques <laughs> on Paleolithic sites. So, <laughs> animals, Paleolithic, it's
1: fine. So, how did that change occur? Did it grow naturally or just circumstances? Yeah, it
2: kind of did. Yeah, I was just kind of pulling together information on what species were present at, at sites and picking case study sites and things, and just kind of dawned on me that rather than just you know what's what the components of the prey here, what what are they eating? It's kind of like well. Where do they go to get them? How are they using the landscape? What's the bigger picture? So it did. It drifted quite quite organically, really. Yeah,
1: the spatial component the yeah. almost.
2: Yeah, And then I ended up looking at you know how they how they think about animals, how how they interact with animals, uh, the the fine grain of hunting details, and you know how that differs over over seasons when the animals are behaving in different ways. So it's yeah. I still think it's quite fascinating to be honest. I never actually published it. So.
1: <laughs> so, how did that then develop into what you're researching currently or what you've done since? <laughs>
2: <laughs> did it? <laughs> um, well, after your PhD, you obviously get stuck in that bit of a kind of postdoc limbo, basically, where you take whatever job comes along.
1: Yeah, I know it well. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, there, there are a few bits and bobs. Um, I did some really interesting stuff up at UCL with Steve Shannon and his team, um, but it was kind of. You yeah, I, I was there for hire, basically. I was doing their work. But that was about phylogenetic analysis and looking at, in fact, this was the, the spread of um, farming technologies across Europe. But it introduced me to a whole new range of techniques that I hadn't really been thinking of. So I think about questions about dispersal, about networking, about connections that had kind of been there in the PhD, but in the background. And then um, another postdoc came up on the Lucita Language Project. Oh, wow. And um, again, applied for that and pitched it very much as a kind of a networky connections kind of a thing. So in my head, there's a straightforward connection. <laughs> um, on paper, it's more difficult to you know to, yeah, to get yeah. across, to be honest. But yeah, that's that's still what I'm doing really: networky connection relatedness in various different kind of ways.
1: So the Lucy to language thing, I kind of associate that name with the title of a book I had when I was an undergrad. Yeah, Is that that's the project grew yeah. out right of a, that theme? Or? It's
2: completely unrelated to the book, okay. but I mean that was a really influential book uh, to be honest. Not so much because of the, the you know, what was right, written because there wasn't actually that much writing in it. It just had no, those it was wonderful it, it was pictures. A, it
1: was really an, an inviting book to look at, wasn't
2: it? And in the days before PowerPoints, um, Clive had some, most of those pictures made up into professional slides yeah, for yeah. His, his talks. And, yeah, I just think, you know, we all spent a lot of time just drooling over the skulls. That sounds weird.
1: (laughs) I I was always fascinated by that book. I've never been particularly into the osteo side of life too much, but that book was so engaging. And then when I started working at BU, seeing the life-size cast we've got of Lucy suddenly getting a scale of it, I was gobsmacked at how short she would have been. <laughs> She's tiny.
2: Yeah. She's not even as small as phorysiensis no, or something like a... that. It's bonkers. It's that?
1: remarkable to see it in that way.
2: I um, think, I mean, yeah, that, that book and just the, the aesthetics of it, but also that it's such a lovely alliterative phrase, isn't it, from Lucy's yeah. language. Yeah. It yeah. just sums no, things a... up nicely. So yeah, that, we just kind of seized on that, I think.
1: So now you find yourself here at Bournemouth Uni. Lecturing in Archaeology and Anthropology?
2: I believe my title now is <laughs> Principal Academic in Archaeology and Anthropology.
1: Fantastic. Uh, but continuing your research? Um, yeah, networks yeah
2: very much so. The same same kind of stuff, basically. Yeah, Branched out a little bit geographically, so moved away from um, certainly from the northern Spain stuff of the PhD to the Near East stuff of the postdoc, uh, now working in Vietnam as well which is a nice, nice counterpoint. Wow, what are you doing in Vietnam? Jack up my air miles a bit. <laughs> um, it's very similar stuff. Yeah. Um, the stuff I'm doing in the Near East is looking at the transition from um, mobile foraging to more settled hunting and gathering and what kind of social changes are involved in that and how we can track that using material culture as archaeologists, yeah. obviously. And it's the same. It's a slightly different time period, but they're they're going through the same changes in Vietnam. They're you know ch- making the same subsistence economic and, and mm. possibly social changes. I guess that's the question. Um, they're making the same economic changes. Yeah, it, you know, are they doing it in the same way? Are the same things happening?
1: Yeah. So is there a point of almost cross cultural comparison where you can see? That's the idea, that's that's the
2: the hope, ultimately. We'll have these two very different kind of ecosystems and and historical processes, really. You know, is is there a bigger picture? Is this always the way that farming happens, that sedentism happens? Or does it play out very differently in different kinds of, of environments and historical situations? So one day I'll be able to answer that.
0: Well, there we go. Um, An amazing variety to the start of her career to where she is now, as we have seen with every speaker so far.
1: I must admit, Fiona's one of my favourite pieces. (laughs) She's (laughs) she's she's
0: hilarious. Wonderfully dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. (laughs) Cracking. I... One thing I am going to pull out early doors is something we keep hearing, and I'm pretty sure we're going to hear more and more as we go through, is everyone talking about how lucky they are.
1: <laughs> and
0: a, a career
1: in ruins is a, career It's the best kind.
0: <laughs> I am a firm believer in you making your own luck.
1: Yeah, I think so too. and, and I, I see that in Fianna. She's one of the hardest, if not the hardest, working person I've ever met. Yeah. And I can imagine that across her career yeah. to
0: date. Uh, no, and that, that comes out in everything that she talks about. Um, I When you... When, Pulling up one thing that you're talking about, you're talking about Lucy, and I'm assuming you're talking about an early, the remains of an early human.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, It's one of, it's a a fossil from uh, the species Australopithecus afarensis. I'll ding, say that quickly ding, to get it ding, out. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, And it's an incredibly well-preserved fossil. Some forty percent of it is is preserved, um, found in Ethiopia, um, and it's one of our early hominin ancestors. Before we got the the name uh, Homo, erectus, yeah. sort of a Homo, um, yeah. um, um, bit of a name. Um, so a very very early human yeah. ancestor, and. It's a wonderful fossil because of its completeness. It's incredible mm. to see. But also the size of it. I, I As I said in the interview there, um, we've got a, a, a life-size cast at work. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. every time I see it, I, I saw it. In fact, I took a picture today. Maybe I'll tweet it later. Yeah. Um, just the scale of it, It's it's kind of... Not much taller than my daughter. Um, it's it's a small fossil, and this is a, a an adult-sized fossil. So it's it's really interesting to sort of tangibly see this tiny ancestor of ours. If it looks in shape, or it's becoming more human. You mm. see it in its stature, um, but s- the scale of it is is quite
0: remarkable to That's see. A, so, I mean, it's a cl- classic case study, isn't it? I remember studying it while I was doing my undergraduate, yeah, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a, a, a classic example of of early humans and our part of our evolution and... exactly and as we
1: said in that interview it was for me at the time that, that sort of colour full colour coffee table book brought it to life for me but I mm. still completely misjudged the scale of it entirely from that book
0: so that's Edgar and Johnson's book yeah yeah
1: and it's it's a gorgeous book I mean academic publishing can be incredibly dry at the best of times Um, but this one it's really glossy big full color images of different hominid fossils different skulls different aspects it survived and and as I as I I said I I've never been a a bony type of archaeologist I've always been into things and materials but that book even kind of encouraged me to think about human evolution in in ways I hadn't really thought of before.
0: That's it, I and mean, I guess we've got another paleo archaeologist on our hand, a bit like Keith a couple of weeks. Yeah, back. yeah.
1: Um, I, I I don't know if Fiona would characterise herself as that now because she has gone through this yeah. big transition, mm-hmm. and certainly some of her recent publications are much more about networks and connectivity, um, connectivity of the mind, and the paleolithic theme still still endures um, or still is present in that research but um certainly she seems as many of our um, interviewees actually has kind of taken various career side steps and slight changes of course mm. to kind of fill out the person they are today so it's really interesting to see yeah. that
0: i guess that she mentions caddy springs which is the paleolithic site in australia and yeah, yeah i guess that will have shaped her early careers quite quite substantially and then as we've seen with everyone so far she's and uh, as you alluded to she she's changed and morphed and
1: it's quite interesting to see and i've enjoyed it um in in some of our interviews particularly where an early seed has kind of developed a little bit and then all of a sudden maybe even later on in people's careers has flourished and developed into this big theme within their research so it's Mm. it's amazing to see that
0: Mm. as a landscape archaeologist i loved her talk talking about the hunting details and the landscape scale of of that that particular time period and that research, I I found that fascinating. I I think I'm going to echo that and applaud
1: any specialist that kind of transitions at any point in their career to a landscape perspective because I think it's so valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's clear in in what Fiona does how important that aspect Mm. is to kind of understanding any kind of human developments Prehistory, proto-history or super prehistory, which isn't a real term, but I'm, I'm going to use it. <laughs> you any- said it, and we're yeah. playing it. <laughs>
0: um, well, thank goodness she didn't go along Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, and Celtic. <laughs> Apologies to any of our Anglo-Saxon and Nordic <laughs> listeners. <laughs> oh, but yeah, no, um, I think we she made a good choice. But. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Should we uh, listen to the rest of it? Yeah, let's carry on. Awesome. <laughs>
1: Like many of the people we've interviewed, you've had a, a career that's kind of spanned different themes in different areas, and you've followed them in different directions. If you had to pick one bit of research, one discovery, one bit of work or collaboration that you're particularly proud of, is there anything that stands out that you kind of say, that's the one? <laughs> particularly proud of? Oh, blimey. Um,
2: um, I don't really know. I mean, I guess, I twist it a little bit and say in terms of significance, the shift up to UCL and the um, you know, the, the phylogenetic work was, yeah. was so different to what I'd been doing before. And it's informed everything that I've done since, I think. That was a big, big change for me. It's, a, it's such a very different culture as well at the Institute. And I thought that was quite quite interesting kind of seeing that. And that, yeah, that very much, very much marked the end of my kind of long stint at Southampton over yeah. the masters and the PhD. And I, oh, suddenly, this these other people who think different things, not to do down the Southampton lot who were brilliant, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's always a sense of, oh, there's a wider world out here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a good advert for being a little bit... Um, mobile in an academic career
2: definitely I recommend to all my undergrads if they want to stay then you know, I don't necessarily tell Bournemouth I'm doing this but <laughs> I tell them they should move <laughs> off and sample other places get new perspectives on things mm. you know with the best one in the world you can have the best lecturers but you, you just need to, to build those networks yeah, and to get so. out and sample as many different ideas as possible.
1: Different academic cultures across the board isn't, yeah, there, exactly.
2: isn't it? exactly yeah.
1: yeah superb so that's a great answer um, moving in a slightly different direction, um, looking around the, the network of people you know and projects you've seen, and colleagues, friends, people in the discipline, is there anything that stands out as something you're kind of envious of, or you'd you wish you were involved in, or wish you could have been involved in?
2: Uh, blah, 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 blah. That's a tricky one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm jealous of Rick Stafford and Elias for hanging out on Costa Rica studying turtles. Maybe I should be in a completely different area altogether.
1: Um, I, also, I tend to have quite green-eyed jealousy when I see what the marine biologists <laughs> upstairs do.
2: I think I've been quite lucky, uh, definitely. I mean, you have a PhD work in northern Spain. At the time, I was um, my, my housemate was doing her PhD in Aberystwyth. So not, not she would, about she would wade around much. in West Wales <laughs> <laughs> rivers, which, you know, I love West Wales, I come from West Wales, but I would rather be in northern Spain drinking cider. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, the Near East is a great place to to go and hang out. such a very different culture. And then now Vietnam is just, just incredible. The food, oh my God, the food <laughs> is incredible. Absolutely brilliant. So while it's always nice to you know, think about working somewhere else, I think I'd quite like to do a bit more kind of social and cultural ethnography type stuff maybe with some northern living groups the Inuit Mm. or the Sami or someone like that but I also hate being cold so (laughs) it's going to be a difficult balancing act. So if you could
1: do that in Portugal Spain the Mediterranean it would be ideal. Yeah if
2: I could study the Inuit from northern Spain (laughs) I think that would be perfect with Vietnamese food.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That seems like an ideal solution not too bad so you'd ultimately have a an enviable career <laughs> uh, fantastic so in that case that brings us nicely on to the last question which i must admit has stumped many oh uh, god <laughs> i'm concerned now so as, as part of this podcast adventure uh, lawrence and i have been working very hard over the last few months to perfect a fully functional time machine and we're lucky in that we can give every every member of everyone we interview a single return ticket to somewhere in the past
2: single or return
1: uh, a return sorry oh, good, a, good, just good. for one just, return just Lawrence gets very <laughs> angry with me when i give away multiple return tickets which i have done before i <laughs> um, so one return right. ticket um so if you had a return ticket to anywhere in the past where would you go
2: can you bring people back with you
1: Oh, no one's asked that before. Let's see where this goes.
2: <laughs> Actually, it might be slightly depressing, but I'd be very interested to go and hang out with some of the, uh, the last remaining Neanderthals. Okay. Just, you know, there's a lot of speculation about how they behaved. You know, I'd like to be able to solve that problem by going and trying to talk to them, <laughs> hang out with them. And if you could bring one of them back, whether or not the poor guy would
1: be lonely, I don't know. Oh. But they
2: successfully interbred with humans, so.
1: They could live a- a sturdy life. Yeah. So if you were to do that, if you were to go back and meet sort of one of the last surviving Neanderthals, and you were to attempt to communicate, what would be the first thing you would do? You, you're standing face to face, you've emerged from whatever shape this time machine is in, faced with a Neanderthal.
2: Well, they don't seem to have been a particularly violent species, but just to be on the safe side, I would probably offer them something Obviously gift-worthy, some kind of food or something. A Twinkie bar, a Mars bar.
1: <laughs> yes. okay, which form of modern-day takeaway would you take back to?
2: Oh, Vietnamese or Spanish. Oh, it's a tough one.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Although probably if I was going to the last Neanderthal, they probably would be in Spain anyway, so they're probably already familiar with the joys of Gambas al Ajillo. So maybe <laughs> Vietnamese, you know, I bet Neanderthals would love noodles.
1: Fantastic. So you'd offer some food and then what's the next step in communicating with a Neanderthal? Mm,
2: I don't really know, to be honest. That's an interesting question. A lot of it hangs on what I want to discover, which is you know, partly what their linguistic prowess would be. How good are they at talking? Obviously they wouldn't speak English, but... uh rather, modern I Spanish? I could. <laughs> That's not very good either, no. in my case. It's been a long time, shall we say. Oh,
1: would you yeah, need to take I'll a picture see. book? Maybe, I don't
2: know. Yeah, I could do. I could take along some props. How many things can I take?
1: Oh, I have a a time machine full with full sci-fi, so you can have a a big old time machine.
2: (laughs) Probably TARDIS, bigger on the inside. Yes, oh, definitely. Oh, awesome. Well, there's all kinds of stuff I'd take that then. DVDs, portable DVD player. Oh, yeah, great
1: idea. Yeah, yeah.
2: Show them Clown of the Cave Bear. Maybe not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'd be epic. I've lost my train of thought now. I did have a very good follow-up <laughs> question, but
2: distracted <laughs> you. Happens a
1: lot. <laughs> it would be, I don't know, I guess meeting the, the last Neanderthal in a a way, that kind of first linguistic protocol. It must be something that's been repeated across certain certainly colonial human history of turning up and attempting to communicate for the first time was so. do I
2: really want to recreate a colonial encounter no no i suppose that's the, the traditional kind of hello strange person give me all your gold and take these this handful of m&ms in return
1: i always do with yeah dark this is a dark path maybe we shouldn't go down but it is a little so bit dark, dark i kind guess of the poor bl-
2: last tell anyway it's already been yeah there.
1: Those kind of first encounters that first contact to use a star trek term uh, must, yes, yeah. yeah
2: it's more about the kind of protocol protocol of first contact with aliens isn't it you know yeah. a species that you can assume is intelligent but you know what's yeah how do you establish that
1: i mean are, do we assume that the, the basis of communication is in any way similar i suppose we can from the biology of yeah, yeah so we aliens. must
2: do. I mean, they're, they're so human-like. That sounds terrible. Humans are so Neanderthal-like. Because they were around first. So we're so similar yeah. <laughs> in terms of the way that we behave and the kind of material cultures that we leave behind in a lot of ways that there must be, there must be a basis for striking out some kind of communication. I think food is probably the you know, way to anyone's stomach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not
1: a bad show. <laughs> so turning up a big bowl of noodles. For the-
2: Maybe a really helpful tool. Oh, the Swiss Army knife or something. Yeah.
1: Oh, superb. All right. I think that's probably a good place to end. But thank you very much for joining us. And that's possibly one of my favourite time machine answers to date.
2: I I'll ask you what the other ones were now. Listen oh, to the podcast. I was going to say, tune in. I certainly will.
1: Once a week for the next couple of weeks until we run out of money.
2: Fair enough. Awesome. Fair <laughs> <much>. <laughs>
1: I must confess, during that, the latter half of that interview, I did find myself getting quite hungry in parts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Noodles. I'm hungry now.
1: I want to go to a nice Neanderthal dinner party, a first contact-based dinner party.
0: <laughs> I don't want to be that guy that always starts the second part of the podcast moaning about your time machine hey, answer. Hey, hey. But there's two things I want to pick up I here. went one use, one use. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you did. But there's two things. One... Why did Fiona laugh when you first told her that we made a time machine? I, I, I fear she didn't believe me. I fear she didn't believe you. I fear we, I think we should re- rescind her offer. <laughs> I don't know. I'd love
1: to see a Neanderthal with noodles.
0: <laughs> Noodle Neanderthal. <laughs> um, secondly, we went to the signing of the Time Accord in 2769. So you know full well that she cannot bring anything back. She can't even tamper with these. She can't even influence them. These
1: are the last Neanderthals. They were going to die anyway. Maybe that's.
0: Maybe she has to go back. It's a self-fulfilling paradox. Oh, my God. My
1: brain hurts. (laughs) Hang on, we've gone down the... (laughs)
0: This is amazing.
1: (laughs) We've gone down a sci-fi route again. Hold on.
0: Back the truck up. (laughs) No, keep going. Keep going. So Fiona's going to go back. Yeah. She's going to break the time accord, uh, temporal accord. Yeah. And she's going kind to... Of Kidnap the last Neanderthal, bring it back. And thus... Est- rendering them extinct.
1: Instincting them, yeah. Rendering them extinct <laughs> is probably better.
0: What have we done? Oh. It's all your fault. I know. You you had like you've got clear instructions, Derek Pittman.
1: I know, but it was so interesting.
0: <laughs> it was, <That> was good.
1: <laughs> the prime directive of this podcast is to be as interesting as possible.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, well, she's broken history now. Okay, uh, yeah, she's okay. she's written history. But we
1: know that everything turned out okay because we're here now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It has to happen. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah we uh, can't stop it. No. I watched uh, <laughs> I watched the Avengers last night and then. Uh, ah no no. Well, no. Anyway, no, it has up, to happen. Shut
1: up. History is history. Um, I'm about 18 movies behind. <laughs> shut, shut your mouth, sure. But
0: so, uh, and sh- she made an interesting point about um, turning up with a really helpful tool. Um, yes. Other than you, what would you turn up with? What would you give him?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, a Swiss Army knife was a nice answer, but I think maybe a rifle. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to twist for balance of power, but maybe. Um, I mean, an iPhone would be useless in the past, I presume. What, what,
0: was, what's, what would you say if you went into your kitchen drawer right now oh. and you pulled out your most used gadget? <laughs> A bottle opener. <laughs> A bottle opener. <laughs> <laughs> Mine would be, you know, those really good avocado things where you, it opens oh, it, don't, it, removes don't, don't it, an and then it slices like, it. Absolute it for idiot. You. Do you know what works really well? A spoon. <laughs> A spoon works A spoon really well. It doesn't slice <laughs> it for you, does it? This guy. <laughs> And you don't I'm want to get avocado hand by putting a knife Oh, my
1: it. God, I'd never taken you as an ad- avocado it was a tool guy. a present,
0: dry. and I've embraced it, it.
1: A present to yourself from <laughs> eBay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, moving on, moving uh, on from your avocado. Well, no, today. I don't want to move on just yet. Uh, OK, OK. As well as that, she talks about going to talk to the Neanderthals. Yeah. Um, that's assuming they've got the same language as us.
1: Well, no, no. It was how, how, would, you, how would you approach different human species that you you suspect have has some linguistic capability but how do you how, what's the, th- the first noise you make the first sound you make mm. how do you how do you overcome that i presume you wouldn't just as as many brits would just talk louder with an accent <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> garlic
1: bread <laughs> <laughs> noodles <laughs> Dos cerveza, four for four. um yeah, what how do you what is the first sound you make faced with I mean it's the same question with an alien as, well, as or with animals. Rooted.
0: There's that who's a philosopher that talks about um if you were to meet a lion and even if you could both speak English you still wouldn't be able to talk yeah, to each Yeah, you
1: culturally wouldn't have the same framework of yeah. understanding and knowledge and how do you overcome that? And where I mentioned the the colonial thing we 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 avoided going down that path because there's many and many a dark narrative there but even so that that idea of first contact with a very culturally different group of people who have a very different language. It must be something to see that interaction, that first, the baby steps of contact with someone else.
0: It's funny you should say baby steps. If I were to nip in the time machine, because we can whenever we want, well, yeah. and just clean up the mess that Fiona's made, like kidnapping, um, <laughs> last day of the and all that, uh, still furious, um, I'd learn baby sign language. Oh, (laughs) fair enough. Food, food. Food. Poop. I imagine that.
1: How would you mind poop? I I don't want to describe what you're doing in front of me. Hey, don't put artificial (laughs) thoughts
0: in the in the listener's head. I'm going to paint a picture with my words. (laughs) But then, no, I'm not going there. (laughs) Baby sign. Let's leave it. Leave baby sign language. No. How would you? Would you? Presumably you've I got know. to think would about...
1: I know, would you mime? You, the idea of offering up food is sort of a gesture of openness and hmm. presenting it, but again, how would you trust the other person to know you'd eat in front of them, maybe you'd mime an action? So
0: uh, I, I feel Fiona hasn't thought about this properly because you've you got to think about what you're going to take. You, you gonna, if you were in her shoes, what, what would you try and learn to best support your approach to this Neanderthal community... I mean, this, this possibly betrays more how peckish I'm currently
1: feeling, but a bargain bucket wouldn't go this. <laughs> <laughs> Not emojis? I mean, we've, emojis, we've, uh, we've got a special yeah. way of talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. So um, just to, to add a bit of context to that, in 99% of the conversations Lawrence and I have on WhatsApp, it's either GIFs or emojis. Mm. But emojis are, I mean, they're modern-day hieroglyphics, aren't they? Mm. So would that be the place to start, sit and talk through expressions, are expressions universal? I mean, some of um, Darwin's work, I believe, was looking at the universality of mm. expression. Could emojis be a, a tool for breaking down that first contact communication?
0: I love where we've gone here. <laughs> <laughs> I know I now baby sign language doesn't sound as ridiculous. <laughs> Getting away from the time machine, because I think we've got a little bit excited. (laughs) That was an inescapable (laughs) rabbit hole for a minute (laughs) there. As part of her second answer, Fiona talks about doing some social and cultural ethnographic studies. Um, I don't know why she's looking at cold places. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the southern hemisphere, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where are you off to in a couple of weeks? Cook uh, Island's in there. Okay, earth, yeah, just yeah. 3.0 weeks. <laughs> and, uh, what exactly are you doing then? Uh, well, uh, we'll be, gonna, <laughs> be doing some excavations and some survey work. But we we'll, we'll also work with ethnographic researchers looking at how modern day culture has been shaped by the past and, and the histories, the cultural histories, and the oral histories as well.
1: OK, so what you're saying is I should go and talk to Fiona now and just let her know that there is a incredibly beautiful... <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, no,
0: no. There's no spaces available. I've got the last space. <laughs> she, can go, she can go to the North Pole. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, no, she would be more than welcome, I'm only joking.
1: Oh, but I think, as, as, as I said earlier, that was... There was so much in that interview and we could sit here and talk about it for hours. But um, I think one day we'll have to get Fiona back on Mm. and talk about what she's doing over the next few years and and, uh, chat through more of her work because there's so much to discuss there,
0: I think. That's it. Looking forward to next week's podcast already? I uh, Same here, but before
1: we get on to that, there's, I've, I've had a bit of feedback from one of our earlier episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So Christian Horn, who was the star of episode two, got in touch with me um, in reference to episode one. Actually. <laughs> okay. Um Talking about our Game of Thrones uh, reference, and he says, listening to your first episode, Wormtongue, the commander of the Unsullied, <laughs> um, in the TV series Game of Thrones. Is that Grey Worm? Yes. Yeah. yeah mm. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his dagger is based on a Nordic Bronze Age period II dagger, which is a very specific design of of archaeological dagger. And I think I'd encourage any of our listeners who are still bearing with us and listening now <laughs> to if there's any TV or cultural references that draw directly on archaeology we'd really love to hear about it and chat about it more and Lawrence and I will go back and look at some episodes of Game of Thrones to see what else we can draw out and when Lawrence is allowed to talk about the Avengers we'll uh, we'll maybe incorporate some of that too but I'd love to hear more um more insight into Archaeological things and types permeating their way into fiction and TV and media. It would be quite fun.
0: That's it. Uh, Only just to add to that is that we we did get a tweet from Chloe Clapham. Okay, yeah, and she was just asking if our podcast is going to be available on other platforms other than Apple devices. Yeah,
1: we are across the board so you can go to our website and um, listen to it directly through careerinruins.com or indeed um, go to Spotify and we will try and find as many medium to, to distribute it as possible, but directly for our website. If you go there, you'll see as any links we've got up to date.
0: That's it. So that's assuming she's listened to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we are hopeful. <laughs> Please find us, Chloe. <laughs> well, mate, well I'm going to shoot off, but uh, good good week this week
1: yeah really nice um we hope you've enjoyed it so far and we'll we'll carry on making as long as you carry on listening so please do um, like and subscribe and we'll uh we'll speak to you soon
0: thank you for listening to the career in ruins podcast please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you received your podcast from make sure you comment do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media we're on twitter we're on instagram we also have a facebook page and uh, we'll look to trying to reply to as many questions as we can hopefully in the podcast as well and sound production on this episode has been done by guy from bucketofsound.com.